and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, The Ambassadors, Twang, of Death, Episode 2, which is the continuation of the space spy thriller. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I am Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. It contains weapons, family, and racism. Not all in the same article. On Monday the 24th of March, there are concerns over the use of a weed killer being used by the British Forestry Commission for clearing shrubs and undergrowth. It turns out that they are actually using a herbicide which forms part of the infamous Agent Orange, initially used in the agricultural industry since the late 1940s, but shock horror, here in the 1970s, we've suddenly become concerned that Agent Orange is highly toxic to absolutely everything. It's important to note that its infamy is from the Vietnam War, but shock horror, the British used it first, for war reasons, in the Malayan Emergency, which was the 1950s colonial guerrilla war between communists and Commonwealth. So, having been used in wars to search and destroy enemy encampments and the unsuspecting general public by searing off crops, fields and flesh, Asian Orange is being used in forests throughout the UK. And also the Forestry Commission denies it being harmful. Yeah, right. One of my first ideas about this was about efficacy versus safety and how you might have had a more of a keep calm and carry on coalface influence kind of deal where people would go down the mine and they were just sort of expected to get on with it and if they were expected to die to die after heaping a good amount of coal first that's what i thought we might be doing but the fact that you've had thalidomide in the early 60s at this point they're still working through all of the legal ramifications of thalidomide at this point it shows that they are really starting to take notice of this in order to be uh, approved for human consumption or use that could affect humans or animals. A product has to be proven to be safe, as opposed to having to prove it's not safe. On Wednesday the 26th of March, a government bill is being proposed in the UK about giving grants to university students with, quote, illegitimate children or mistresses. So it appears that the bill is trying to recognise that grants need to be legally given to people whose status, for whatever reason, is outside that of the established nuclear family. So suddenly we have university students that have children that are less than legitimate, quote unquote, or we can have male students that are living with a genuine dependent, male or female, then they can have a grant to go to university or claim bits of money back from university regardless of what they get up to. So to sum up, rights for bastards. Partially, yes. There's only a thousand students maximum in 1970, according to Baroness Phillips, who was talking about this in the House of Lords. But considering they're talking about just a thousand in 1970, and now 50 years on, 
we can only presume that those numbers are somewhat higher. A different change in the education sector 50 years ago and now is the almost continuous mulling over whether students can earn degrees in just two years rather than the standard three. Yeah, so it's interesting that we've got two years and that's been mulled throughout the last 50 years. And here we've started with science degrees in 50 years ago. And nowadays people always talk about science degrees being a big thing. It shows that there isn't actually much improvement in education. We're always mulling over the same ideas. Um, a difference in why we might be mulling over it now is because uh, the education system has become more uh, commercialised. And so if you have two year students, then that means, oh, look, we can get more students in a shorter time. We can make more money despite constantly trying to improve. We're still searching for the same old solutions and not really progressing necessarily. And finally, on Saturday, the 29th of March, there's an article in The Times about how the Bishop of Southwark believes that Jesus was black. The article is in the context that the Archbishop of York has had a holiday to South Africa, which in 1970 is run by a white minority regime exercising apartheid. I don't know how novel an idea of Jesus being a not a pale white European man was in 1970, but I'm I can't imagine it with a totally alien idea. This definitely fits in with where we're going with apartheid, where um, anyone who went there from a Western country was sort of viewed to be giving their blessing to the regime, almost legitimising this regime that lots of people hated. So here we're getting at the beginnings of that. I mean, apartheid's only been going on since the late 50s, I think. It's certainly interesting that here we do see the Church of England starting to take a more progressive view, which has only carried on into 50 years hence. And that is the development of views on progressive ideals between 50 years ago and now. That was the news, and now we shall get into The Ambassadors of Death, episode two. It's got space science and it's got spy thriller elements, and the two intertwine largely successfully, I feel. Hulk has definitely recognised this brief of conspiracy with astronauts. Indeed, it's only now that I realised that it's quite like the Quatermass experiment, the original serial. No wonder I like this series and story. My spidey senses were first tingling when he said the transmigration of object. Okay, the doctor here is making up rules. Now, one of the big differences between hard and soft sci-fi And one of the things which led to the hard sci-fi boom in the 60s was that they felt that soft sci-fi was just making up the rules. So you could go to a planet and it would be doing whatever it wanted that the author would be doing. And it was just a complete mess. It had no realism whatsoever. So that's why they introduced the more realism. So far in this season, we've had the Silurians and we've had Spearhead, which both really rest on that realness this one is intentionally making up the rules of what the conspiracy can do it's making up the rules of the doctor's power and he just seems to know things this is a direct contradiction to the previous two stories is it trying to be more actually to break it up or is it starting to lose its way as we head towards a wackier Pertwee era this is probably the beginnings of the the old regular Doctor Who format coming back through 
considering Barry Letts and Terence Dix didn't actually want to be stuck on Earth, that was uh, Derek Sherwin's intention, wasn't it? Mm. And, and, and indeed, this was initially from a brief by David Whittaker, which was for the second Doctor, Jane and Zoe, in season six. So I wonder how many elements transmigrated from there to the finished episode. It's in a very realistic scenario in terms of how it's treating lots of things, but the Doctor is starting to become more than just clever science man, isn't he? He's back to being more alien-like. Absolutely, he has gut feelings again. They're all communists, Nick. Everyone in Doctor Who is a communist, aren't they? That's a pretty broad <laughs> sweeping statement, Mr. McCarthy. This one's more about a right wing conspiracy than a left wing one, so. Really oh, so the Doctor's is. a communist. No! <laughs> the conspirators are. Oh, oh that's dear. all right then. Yes, they're an insurgent group within the population. They're obviously the communist ana- analogy. There you go, Nick. I gave you that one as a freebie. <laughs> or neo-Nazi, oh. Nazis or other extremist wings. Yes, other extremist other wings are, are available. available. Congratulations, <laughs> yay. So let's look at this conspiracy in greater detail. Dr. Taltalian, for some reason, holds the Doctor and Liz at gunpoint. Seems he wants the computer tape of the message that the Doctor is trying to decode. The Doctor magics it away. Battalion tries to take Liz hostage when the Brigadier intervenes, but fair credit to her, she escapes. But so does Battalion, who is evidently part of a conspiracy. Whilst Liz attempts to decode the message, the Doctor and the Brig talk to one of the brigands, taken prisoner from the fight last episode, and they discern that he's a military type. It's a good cop-bad cop routine, which is an interesting genre for Doctor Who at the time. I kind of like it. Courtney and Pertwee sell it well. I, I like that this Doctor magicking stuff and does transmigration or whatever. At least it's a payoff to the TARDIS console scene in part one, isn't it? Yes. At least they keep it to small objects, because if you tried to magic away the blooming recovery capsule, that would have been a bit weird. That would happen in New Who, not Classic Who. Yes, it would. <laughs> that is definitely agreed by the entire panel, isn't it, Luke? Yes. Yeah. Anything Black. that's bad about New Who, I, I agree with. Okay. <laughs> well done. Um, but it's interesting how we're having to insert the TARDIS on the Doctor so artificially. You know, at this point, he is so tied to it that the thought of having him away from it you know, it doesn't work with the character. So you're right, Nick. It is bringing in the TARDIS, but it shows how magnificent the TARDIS is at this point. Imagine trying to have a whole season without it. It, it would suck. I don't want it. The two probes in space, the Mars one and the recovery one, have separated, avoiding the solar flares, but there has been no contact from any space pilot. The recovery capsule is readying itself for a re-entry into Earth's orbit. Meanwhile, the ex-military brigand is helped to escape from his prison. The Doctor and Liz discover their decoding machine was sabotaged by Tatalian, which means that him trying to steal the computer tape was pointless, I guess? Or is he covering his tracks? Probably. And then we spend the next few minutes getting the recovery capsule back to Earth safely, which is a nice source of tension. 
Okay, so I made a note about this saying be more sci-fi with less sci-fi. Essentially, these spy thriller elements and these kind of noir detective elements, they reflect what I've often thought about sci-fi, which is that it's not really a genre in or of itself. So Doctor Who would be an adventure story with the sci-fi elements. Philip K. Dick is noir story with the sci-fi elements. By doing a less pure kind of sci-fi, you are tying yourself more into the sci-fi of the time. And I know that Doctor Who is an anthology series, but I would say we're going as far away from the adventure style as the historicals did by making it more of this noir spy thriller thing. And you get a lot of that sort of stuff around this time. I mean, when was Philip K. Dick writing? 70s, 60s? It's been about this time, yeah. Around that time, yeah. Exactly. So it's taking cues from other sci-fi, which is getting bigger around this time, which I think is quite good for it and integrates it more into the scene. Yeah, and, and it certainly has no problems with being holding up a big sign going, we're a spy thriller at the moment when it plays like the Bond style music. Yes, <laughs> thank you for my point. Mm. Because where where else in Doctor Who are you going to get those wind instruments as the background soundtrack? Amazing. Yeah, it, it's very it, good. It does sound like a more modern soundtrack compared, well, especially compared to last uh, serial. You know what I mean in that because it sort of sounds a bit Bondy. You, you sort of get that soundtrack now because of Bond films and just that's what spy films sound like. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you were saying about how it wasn't obvious that traditional orchestra would be a thing at this point, but now it is the obvious thing to do. So Doctor has been talking and the, the, the stuff with the probe is going on and it's coming back down to Earth. And I was like, ah, it's all right. I'm going to go talk to Liz. They've got another orbit. I'm not bothered. And he walks off. And so like, I was like, ooh, his nonchalance reflects the fact that space travel takes a really long time. These things don't just happen, you know, in a matter of minutes normally. Hmm. I just like the fact that the episode's like, yeah, no, he doesn't care yet. He'll come back later in, at the end. <laughs> yeah. Stop being glued to the screen. Let's go do something else, which really works in this episode because almost in every different scene, we're cutting to something else. Yeah, well, I'm imagining if you're watching the moon landings live or whatever, there must have been taking quite a while. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose everybody passed the time by doing drugs, I guess. <laughs> that's why they can't remember half of it yeah. <laughs> but finally finally then they see Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and they go whoa I'm tripping out man and then they see the silence flash up for that moment they're like oh I'm really tripping out mm. having got the capsule to a safe ground location because I guess a sea landing was too much budget for the story the doctor, the brigadier and professor Cornish who accidentally looks a lot like Chris Addison in this scene, tries to get the recovery capsule open with no success. They are watched over by the conspirators <coughs> of death as Unit attempts to take the capsule back to the space centre. The conspirators <coughs> of death go in with a helicopter and hairdryer guns and steal the capsule from the brigadier 
in an action sequence which definitely blew the budget with hot air. I, I like that the Havoc theme plays a bit just before the scene, so you know, oh, action scene's coming up because it was the same Even last. though it's a lorry going across a bridge really slowly. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was pretty funny. Oh, no, wait, it's, it's hammering in the fact that space programs take really long amounts of time. Even recovering the capsule yeah. back on Earth takes forever. The helicopter attack. This must have been like a massive spectacle episode at the time. And this is off the back of said stuntmen having a bite in a warehouse last episode as well. Yeah, so this must have been this must have been quite impressive to someone watching it 50 years ago. The amount of action. I, I think the action scene does work because if you didn't have it in here, there's not an awful lot to this episode really. You need to know that these people are proper professionals and mean business, and and it's establishes them as a threat. So that I mean, the less action-heavy bits towards the end of the serial, you know that they're threats. Last serial, we had a field where you had the helicopter stuff take place. Uh, the one before that seemed to take place in a lot of gardens and farmland. We're, we've left the quarries. We're now in the fields. Yeah, you're right. We're on heathland and fields and gardens and industrial estates, I'd say. The fact that it's so open makes it feel so much more vulnerable. Like there's a real sense of terror and scope when the guy is you could see him hiding in those bushes it's not some crummy set you could feel the distance in between them Mm. especially now that you've got the space to do it in outdoors locations so you can pan to him yeah and and then there's the bits when they're loading up the lorry with the uh, recovery seven and the doctor and the brig and everyone else talking to each other and the engines are so loud you can barely hear them so it's it does feel like you're there. This feels new and it feels like they're really aware of it because limitations have been lifted. Nowadays, I'm thinking of Praxius and I'm thinking of the globe trotting one that came after. Can you hear me? That's the one um, that came after it. That one just assumes that they can go wherever they want. They can have whatever location they want. They all the vistas, so many vistas, and they can dump in an animation segment in there. I mean, that was the tagline for Series 12, space for all. Exactly, right? My point here is that it's really taking advantage of it and really soaking it up, using it as much as it can, compared to nowadays, where it's more background. The Doctor, having had trouble with Bessie, manages to outwit the conspirators of death with, quote, John Pertwee's old man routine, trademark, unquote, and the magnetic anti-theft device on Bessie. Yes, really. And he reappropriates the space capsule to take back to the space centre. There, Liz has discovered that the message, beamed to Earth, was a pictogram. Tartalian's ex-assistant's talks to the conspirators, smash cut to the doctor and the brigadier talking to a minister. After getting no results from him, the minister talks to the in-hiding Dr. Tautalian. So it's definitely not a surprise that Malcolm Hulk is not a fan of ministers and government types, considering he's now part of the conspiracy too. We then discover that the astronauts are seemingly alive, but repeating the same messages over and over, and in a creepy way as well. Having undenied about whether to risk the astronaut's safety, the gang decide to cut the space capsule open with the astronauts seemingly inside. 
and unresponsive. Right, cut it open is the best ending to a Doctor Who episode, and you can't change my mind. Well, it's it's just the build-up from, from yes. Space Control vs. Recovery 7. It continues, it continues. We continue zooming in on Pertwee. It's not a crash zoom, it's a continuous zoom. And then we go to right, cut it open. It, it, it's the best kind of cliffhanger, which is, it's not the Doctor's under threat. It's it's like, what's going to happen next? Sort of, there's a new, there's been a twist in the tale. Well, where's it going now, the story? As opposed to, oh, look, evil man has gun pointed at Doctor. Doctor pulls face. Like, much better than that. It's mm. one like this. The pictogram is quite lovely because that's exactly the sort of thing that we were sending off to other planets where things that could be interpreted as a pictogram. So Malcolm Hulk has once again read his science and he knows that's what we were talking about is how you might communicate with an alien entity. How much of that is built into the episode? Considering if we compare the Christmas invasion where we've got the blood being such a key aspect of that story, how would you compare the usage in that story versus this story? Well, I, I guess that's showing that Nihu's more human-like. They're not, they're not as thinking that aliens are more different from us. The fact that they have blood that is close enough to ours means that, um, or have a knowledge of blood like ours means that they must, they're more mammalian than, like, than an alien could, you know, might be, you know. Here, these are just totally different aliens that, that we don't have any reference points with them. That's interesting. So there's a broader scope of what could be out there in this sort of story as opposed to in that story. Yeah, and I, I think it follows a trend of science fiction in the last 50 years, where 50 years ago, that they were more, they had bigger ideas in the sense of they, they were willing to imagine things could be wildly different in the future or things could be wildly different on other planets. And now we've become kind of more focused on realism in as much as we're not willing to countenance the idea that things could be wildly different in the future or on a different planet. Ah, uh, yes. I remember the film Looper, which was called out for its very realistic and subtle future. And that seemed to set a bit of a trend. But nevertheless, it is a point well raised in that there is the continuing clash between writers of the generation 50 years ago and now as to what type of sci-fi they use, whether it be soft sci-fi or hard sci-fi, as Luke pointed out earlier in the episode, and how much realism you put into your story. It's a very interesting thing to discuss. And it's just one of the differences that we discuss in Doctor Who 50 years ago and Doctor Who nowadays. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there because it helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. We shall be back next week to cut open episode three of The Ambassadors <coughs> of Death. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.